a lot of times on the left, white people will champion things that are, you know, supposedly for racial equity, but they're pretty small scale. They don't actually challenge the system of whiteness and the system of race very much, but white people feel better. In other words, whiteness feels better about having done something, but doesn't do so much that whiteness feels uncomfortably thrust into actual change. Welcome to Bridge the City, a podcast recorded in the important American city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas that inspire Milwaukee to action. If you didn't know that already, you haven't been listening to the intros, or it's your first episode, and we welcome you. My name is Kyle Heggie. And I'm Ashley Benson. And today we sat down with another mayor. That's right, we're going back-to-back interviews with mayors. I know I just said back-to-back, but it's not an interview with the mayor of Toronto. Nope. Toronto is canceled. Canceled. Bucks and six. But (laughs) as you may remember, our last Milwaukee talkie was with Mayor of Milwaukee, Tom Barrett. And on today's episode, we actually shift to our neighboring city to the west, not Wauwatosa, folks, but Minneapolis, Mm. Minnesota. Does that mean that we're a national podcast now? Um, That's verified. We are now national. Great. I'm so excited. So like Kyle said, we had an amazing conversation with Betsy Hodges, who served as mayor of Minneapolis from 2014 to 2018. Outside of her time as mayor, she also served on the Minneapolis City Council, the Linden Hills Community Council, and worked for various nonprofits. In this interview, she had very interesting and thoughtful insight on racial equity, the tools of power, sexism in politics, and how her mission, not her profession, guides her. Yeah, and I will say, I think it'll be really interesting if you haven't listened to the interview with Mayor Tom Barrett, after you're done with the interview with Mayor Betsy Hodges, go back and listen to that because they are very different interviews. And I think you can learn a lot about how different mayors conceive of their job and of their city. And so you can view this kind of as a companion piece to our interview with Mayor Tom Barrett to gain a lot of insight on how mayors effectuate change uh, at the local level. And obviously, we really want to thank Mayor Betsy Hodges. She is an incredibly dynamic leader, and it was extremely gracious of her to meet with us. I will give one action step in the beginning. We're going to mix things up, and that's give her a follow on Twitter, at Betsy Hodges. She is incredibly insightful. She'll talk about racial equity, uh, leadership at the city level, but also she'll do some 13-second videos of cats as little meditations on Twitter. They keep the vitriol off your timeline, and it's a great follower, so follow her on Twitter. And we all know I do love cats, and I love Twitter, but that's enough of us for now, so we'll turn it over to a much more interesting human, former mayor of Minneapolis, Betsy Hodges. Uh, Well, my name is Betsy Hodges. I am the former mayor of Minneapolis, Minnesota. I served on the city council for eight years before I was mayor. I left office in January of 2018. Uh, And since then, I've been working with, mostly working with organizations that work with cities uh, to support effective racial equity work, um, especially by navigating whiteness. There's a bunch of other stuff I do, but that's a good thumbnail. We've had the pleasure of hearing you a couple times. I actually was at one of the events that you had with the 
some other former mayors um, and really enjoyed what you were talking about and discussing. So it was the cred event. The one in Chicago. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were really talking about equity, but one of the things that you were discussing was if you had 10% more in your budget, how would you center it around equity? Mm-hmm. I ran for mayor in 2013 explicitly on a platform of racial equity. I walked around the city talking with people day in and day out about the fact that Minneapolis has the biggest gaps between white people and people of color of any city in the country, which shocks people because mm-hmm. um, we are also considered a very progressive, forward-thinking city. Um, but on pretty much any measure you care to name, um, people of color in Minneapolis are on the bottom of lists we would prefer to be at the top of, and at the top of lists we prefer to be at the bottom of. Education, employment, housing, health, public safety, all of it. So um, I was very open about that, and not only was I open about the fact that I cared about closing those gaps, I named whiteness a lot over and over. And for folks who know white people, uh, white people don't like whiteness to be named. Uh, it is one of the hallmarks of whiteness that white people don't know very much about it and don't care to discuss it. So the fact that I did that and still won in 2013 with a pretty significant margin was both thrilling, you know, personally, but also really sent a signal to the city and to city staff that this is what I was clearly elected to do. And that made its way through everything that I did at City Hall. Things, people that I hired, um, the budgets that I put together, the things that I championed, the way that I spent my time where I went to be public. Um, we're sitting in downtown Minneapolis and there are a number of downtown leaders who thought that I didn't spend enough time with them. It was just always funny to me because I participated very heavily in a lot of downtown activities. Um, But there were also other parts of the city who for years had said, the mayor's not here, the mayor doesn't meet with us, who said, hey, the mayor's here, the mayor's meeting with us. Uh, But I was also clearly working to change systems from the top to bottom, to actually change the DNA of systems. One of the things about whiteness, um, especially on the left, is that Whiteness wants comfort, it doesn't want change. And so for white people on the left, the discomfort is often a cognitive dissonance between how we think the world should be and how the world is for us and for people of color. Um, But again, whiteness wants comfort, it doesn't want change. So what what whiteness is seeking is to reduce the discomfort of the cognitive dissonance, to feel better about it. And so a lot of times on the left, white people will champion things that are, you know, supposedly for racial equity, but they're pretty small scale. They don't actually challenge the system of whiteness and the system of race very much, but white people feel better. In other words, whiteness feels better about having done something, but doesn't do so much that whiteness feels uncomfortably thrust into actual change. Mm So I was looking to change systems. And one of the key tools that anybody has in any organization is the budget, right? As Joe Biden once famously said, don't tell me your values, show me your budget, and I will tell you your values. Hmm. Um, And so as the mayor in Minneapolis, I got to take the first crack at creating the budget. I would put a budget together and present it to the council. They could amend it and then pass it. 
And to prepare to put that budget together, I would meet with all the department heads in the city. And to prepare for those meetings, there was always a set of questions. What do I want to know? What do I want to hear from them? And of course, I wanted to hear what they thought the priorities in their department were and what they wanted to do. But every year, I also asked the question, in one form or another, I asked the question, if you had 10% more money in your budget, like just your department's budget, and you could only spend it on racial equity, on things that would advance through your department, racial equity in the city of Minneapolis, what would you do? And that was to elicit the best thinking of the leaders of the city, right? The people who know their departments best, what would they come up with? And it was a very illuminating process. You learn a lot about people and where they're coming from and what their allegiance is to the issue um, by how they respond to that question. And I got some of the some really, really great ideas about what we could do as an organization, what we could do as a city from asking that question. It helped me make a lot of investments in the budget in racial equity. And, uh, you know, I also learned where people were challenged with the issue, where people were resisting the issue. It was kind of clear from what they would bring forward. And um, which isn't to say everybody, everybody was really great. Everybody was doing their best to get their sales, you know, all going in the same direction, all those ship sales going in the same direction. You know, we had a great team and a great group of people, but you could, you learned a lot about people. So you're just mentioning how you ran on essentially an explicit platform of racial equity. You won, which gives mm-hmm. you a sense of a mandate to act on that. I'm curious too, like your, your concept of whiteness and not wanting to change and wanting to stay comfortable. How did you go about trying to persuade department heads or any other political leaders that weren't fully on board with racial equity? How did you persuade them that this is the thing that we need to focus on? Well, you use all the tools you have in your tool belt. First thing, and the most important thing, was to have a message for white people that put them in the picture. A lot of times the way that white people speak about racial equity as though is as though it's charity for people of color, it's mm-hmm. something we're doing out of the kindness of our hearts that we can dip into or dip out of as we choose. And it's very rare that white people make the case for each other about what's in it for us to do racial equity work. We talk about what we're gonna lose. We don't talk about what we're gonna lose, right? We just act out what we think we're gonna lose. We don't talk about it at all. Um, And so a big chunk of the lift, and this is still true, is to make the case for white people that there's something in it for us. And I did that when I was campaigning that the entire city would do better, including white folks, if we could get a handle on our inequities in a variety of ways. Here's what happens if we reduce the employment gap. Here's what happen, Here's what happens if we reduce and eliminate the education gap that we have. You know, I didn't paint a picture of, let's all get to some acceptable mean between where white people are and where people of color are. It's, let's make sure everybody's elevator is getting to the top floor. But for white people, if you're on the 11th floor, if you're one of those glass-sided elevators and you're on the 11th floor and somebody else is on the second floor, as the other elevator comes up, you have the sensation that you're going down even if you're not moving at all. And that, I think, is what the experience of racial equity is for a lot of white people. If they see people, if we see people of color coming up, 
we have this sensation and it's an illusion, but the sensation that somehow we're going down in that process when maybe we're both going up, but just at different rates because somebody else had a little further to go and theirs had to move a little faster. So making that case to white people that there's something in it for us that, you know, for example, in the Twin Cities metropolitan area, if we were to eliminate all of our racial disparities by 2040, we'd have 35 billion more dollars in our economy. That's not a small number in our region. That's a lot. We're leaving a lot of genius on the table. Um, a lot of access to people who could be transforming our communities for the better, transforming our economy for the better, transforming our civic and cultural life for the better together. Um, we're leaving that genius on the table. And so making that case was really important. The flip side of that is to recognize that not everybody's on board, not everybody's going to be on board, and they're going to resist. And when white people resist racial equity change, it is almost never somebody saying, in, at least in Minneapolis, it's almost never somebody saying, I don't want people of color to succeed. I don't want indigenous people to succeed. Um, it's usually, we don't have the budget for that, or it is, I'll have that for you on Monday, every Monday for six months, or it is, um, we've always done it this way, that's a big one. Or we tried that six years ago and it didn't work, that's a big one. Or they'll attack the messenger, right? And so there are a lot of efforts to undermine my effectiveness. You know, the, the way that I was reported in the media, the way the rumor circle worked in Minneapolis about what I was doing and why, right? Trying to reduce my efficacy, which means that which was a way of reducing the agenda, but nobody had to say I oppose her agenda. I just think she's kind of X, Y, Z, A, B, C. That's how it works. And if, you know, people will use whatever tools they have at their disposal to object to your agenda. And, you know, if they have the tools of sexism available to them, they will use those tools. And they did uh, a lot. And so you have to be a savvy politician. You have to be a savvy actor. You have to know resistance when you're seeing it. And one of the best tools you can have is organizing. One of the best tools you can have, therefore, is relationships, just knowing people. I had enough relationships and had enough work over time that I was able to get a lot of things done that should have been impossible because I had bulwarks against the resistance. Mm -hmm. um, I had enough people bought into the picture, including enough white people bought into the picture. And I had enough people helping make the picture real and defend against the attacks to really get a lot done. But it all comes back to really making a case that there's something in this for everybody. Um, so you just mentioned organizing, and I want to touch on that because when you spoke to our class, and I'm, I may butcher the direct quote, but it was essentially, I know organizing works because if it didn't, they would fund it. Yes. And that stuck with me, and right when I heard it, I was like, that doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. Like, that, no, what? And I, it literally, like, I kept thinking about what, what does she, like, mean by this? And then in my, like, own interpretation, the they was, like, the powers that be and, like, want to see the status quo stay the same. And organizing is effective, and we know it because they're not putting any money into it because it would upend the system. That was my interpretation, and then I was like, that's genius. So, <laughs> it's just, like, it was one of the quotes that really, like, it made me think a lot and, like, kind of understand some of the political structures a little more 
And so do you want to just talk about like that quote and the power of organizing that you saw mm-hmm. either before your term of mayor, as mayor, or after? And you're right. I mean, what I say all the time is organizing works. If it didn't, people would fund it more. Uh, and that is often a consideration of government, although there are re- limits on what governments can do in terms of funding advocacy. But, you know, it goes for philanthropy. Um, it goes for all sorts of things. Organizing works. Connecting people to each other about shared common interests works. It all comes down to basic human connection. And one of the things, any given oppression is designed to separate people from each other. All oppression is designed to separate people from each other. It is designed to confuse one human being about another human being on the basis of X, Y, Z, A, B, C, on and on and on. It is designed, oppression is designed to, to occlude humanity. It is designed for me to forget that the person across from me is a human being on one parameter or another. And it's always in service of a very small group of people um, who usually financially benefit from everybody else's confusion. And so the best way to fight oppression is to connect with other human beings. Um, and to do your best to divest yourself of any confusion you're holding about another person's humanity. And I think that's true in any direction, right? I think that's true when I am thinking about people who are carrying oppressor identities, and I think it's true when I am looking at my own you know, oppressor material and thinking about the people that I'm supposed to be confused about. It works in any direction. The more we can reclaim our humanity and the more we can connect with each other, the stronger we are as communities and the stronger we are as people. And organizing at its heart is just connecting people to one another. Organizing at its heart is connecting with people on the things that matter to them most. And when you do it together, a lot of BS just slips away right? Mm -hmm. And that is as dangerous as it gets for systems that rely on separation of people to exist. Mm -hmm. So they aren't going to fund organizing in any measurable way, Mm -hmm. right? It's not going to get funded. Systems that, you know, systems that are inside the overall system we've created aren't going to knowingly self-destruct without a lot of organizing. And um, it feels dangerous to, to people. And for me, there's nothing to lose. The thing that a human being cares most about losing is connection with other people. And in the system that we have already, for white people, for example, that has already been lost. Working on whiteness is a reclamation project. It is not a loss project for mm-hmm. white people. It is reclaiming parts of ourselves that we sacrificed when the whiteness started getting slathered on our humanity. And that's part of the case that we get to make for one another. So yeah, organizing works. I knew that as mayor. I knew that when people were organizing against me and when people were upset with me and organizing. And I sometimes uh, had my feelings hurt by that, but I was never confused about the value of organizing. Um, And I did my best to use the energy of the organizing, even if it was directed at me, to create openings at City Hall to advance the agenda that knowingly or unknowingly, for the most part, we shared. 
me and the people who are organizing against me um, from the left, I should say. The people organizing against me from the right, that was a different set of <laughs> strategies I had to deal with. But um, it works. It creates opening, it creates attention. Even if it's just purely disruption, it creates opening and focus and attention. And it, you know, if you are in a position of power in a system, you can use that opening and focus to advance an agenda. We've talked a lot about things that are difficult to dissect and to discuss, and you do it in such a way that is principled. And I'm very curious to see how you got to this space and how you have remained true to your values. Uh, I am a recovering alcoholic. I got sober in July of 1989, which means if I don't have a drink between now and July of, of 2019, I will have been sober for 30 years, but I don't claim sobriety, I don't have, but we're going on 30 years. Mm -hmm. And that, um, and I'm a survivor of childhood sexual assault. I was abused by adults outside my family for many years when I was a kid, and it was pretty ugly. All of it's ugly, but the details of my story, which I don't talk about very often, are, are particularly um, gnarly, I guess is a word. So, you know, there's a reason I was an alcoholic by the time I was 19, and I got into recovery, and the principles of recovery and the faith that I have as a result of that, even though I walked in the door knowing there was something bigger than I was, but getting into recovery and sobriety helped me know that that something bigger than I was was a relationship I could rely on day in and day out. And as an alcoholic, I know that I am either walking toward the bottle or away from the bottle on any given day, mm -hmm. right? There's no standing still. You're doing one or the other. And that if I wake up too many mornings in a row not being able to look myself in the eye, that is a sure sign I am walking, nay, running, straight <laughs> for a bottle of alcohol. And so I knew, I knew as I governed that I had, and I know as I do this work, that I have things at stake that are bigger than a job, things at stake that are bigger than people liking me. Um, if I don't do my best to follow the North Star that guides me, right? And so... Not, I, I think though, the thing is, is I think everybody has that, that the discomfort you feel when you are not living with your values, when you are making compromises that are a cut too far for yourself, I think everybody knows that feeling is horrible. Um, they just don't always have the advantage I have of having their lives being at stake. Because <laughs> um, alcoholism is a fatal illness. So there's that. Mm -hmm. And the way I came to the work in April of 1992, April 29th, as a matter of fact, the, there was a jury in Los Angeles who decided to acquit officers who had beat Rodney King. And that was the first time people had seen on video, white people had seen on video, some of the things that were happening to people of color outside of a protest movement, that what police officers were capable of doing to people of color. and and a visual representation of the stories we'd been told for decades about what was happening. And I remember I was living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was working the overnight shift at a facility for people with mental illness. 
I had graduated college the year before. I thought I was going to be a psychologist or an addiction psychologist. Um, and I remember just staying up all night and watching CNN and watching what was happening and uh, the uprisings, right? And, and the coverage of the, the trial and the coverage of the, of the beating and just realizing in some visceral way that that was about white people. Like, white people made that decision. The jury was not entirely white, but whiteness, let me just put it that way, whiteness was at play here. Whiteness had made that decision. Whiteness had allowed the beating, whiteness had excused it, and whiteness had acquitted it. And um, I saw something about race and whiteness that I hadn't seen before. A veil got ripped away, and it has never fully gone back. And so I made a decision that, as a white person, I had standing in voice to use in this work, that it's the work of white people to work with other white people to um, end racism or transform race or whatever phrase we want to use for the project. Um, that there's a design flaw in the expectation white people have that people of color and indigenous people will lead us out of our racism. There's a design flaw there, and that design flaw serves the system. There's a limited number of white people who will follow people of color initially. We get to do this work with and for each other in part because it is what people of color and indigenous people and communities of color have been asking us to do uh, very openly for a long time. And so I took that charge on, and it compelled decisions. I ended up going to graduate school in sociology instead of psychology um, at UW-Madison, studying race and class. Uh, but when it came time to do my dissertation, and I was doing politics instead of studying politics because a professor at UW-Madison, Joel Rogers, had made the case that local government was a really effective, powerful place to enact social change. So I started doing that work at the local level, and my entire adult life has been doing um, local political work. And eventually I was asked to run for office, and I did. But... Uh, you know, when I moved to Minneapolis, I moved to a very white, very wealthy part of the city. That was a considered choice on my part. Um, people of color did not need me coming to their neighborhoods and trying to lead the way on racial equity. Um, but I really wanted to connect with and know white people in the city to do this work. And that ended up happening. I was on my neighborhood council, build relationships. It's all the relationships, right? And I knew people and I had a base. And so eventually I was asked to run for city council and I did. It's interesting. I've never heard someone talk about whiteness in the way that you do. And I could be much more well-read on this subject, but it's something that really stood out to me the first time I heard you speak in Dr. Wilson's class. And specifically running on a platform almost around that issue and winning. And then four years go by, you're still obviously passionate about the work. I assume the platform was much the same. There's still work to be done and you don't win. Mm -hmm. I'm curious on like what that says about like American politics or like city politics that we were really like people wanted you in 2013. They wanted this. They were excited about it. And then four years later, they're like, oh, maybe we maybe that isn't what we want. What was your uh, like dissection of the loss and what that means? I mean, there's there's a lot to be said about it. And I won't say everything there is to be said about it, but I'll say a couple key things. One of them is it was a very tumultuous term. Um, Jamar Clark was shot and killed by Minneapolis police officers in November of 2015. There was an 18-day occupation of the police precinct. 
Uh, some of the decisions I made during that time um, upset a lot of people in my base on the left. Um, fast forward a couple years, four months before the election, Justine Damon is shot and killed by Mahmoud Noor, a Somali police officer in the heart of the area I have lived in and represented on the city council and then as mayor. And so that, I lost a lot of the base that of the southwest part of the city that I'd represented for a long time. And I, even so, I lost by a few hundred votes. You know, it wasn't a slam dunk. And for me, after the election, um, I mean, it's heartbreaking, as I say all the time. Losing blows, I don't <laughs> recommend it. Um, it. It's heartbreaking. And it's not like my mission was to be the mayor, right? right? My mission was to have an impact on my community, especially regarding racial equity, and I did that. And I can still do that. Mm -hmm. um, I just, I'm just using other vectors to do that. And, it's, and that... Um, was a good thing to realize very quickly after I lost the election. You know, there's still the grieving process and all of that, but the mission wasn't lost, right? And I am fortunate that I am not a politician who was motivated by being a politician. Um, I, those politicians are out there. I think we see them and know them. And I feel for them when they lose elections, especially as incumbents, because that has to be even more difficult because what do they have to turn to? <laughs> um, you know, bless their hearts. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would say there were a lot of white people who'd been willing to follow me for a really long time. And then when a white person got shot and killed by a police officer, they uh, freaked out extra hard. Mm -hmm. It's an unusual thing to happen. Mm -hmm in wealthy white neighborhoods, and um, that had an impact on how they saw me, and I understood that. When you were in the city council, you were the chair of the council's intergovernmental committee. Mm -hmm. um, tell us about the advocacy for the city mm -hmm. at the state level. Yes, my first term as city council member, I was the chair of the intergovernmental relations committee, and so that is the committee that, and the, subsequently the City Council has changed how that work was structured. But when I did it, it was just a regular City Council committee. Uh, a keeper of the legislative priorities of the city. And the mayor does not keep those legislative priorities, right? The council decides what those are. Um, and it was a tricky thing. I was on the... I, I, and, and again, it was, for me, it was a lot about building relationships. I... I served on the League of Minnesota Cities board for six years. I was the chair for a year of that. Um, getting to know other mayors and, or mayors and council members from across the, across the state. Those relationships served me in good stead and served the city in good stead when it did come time to do advocacy work because I had people from other parts of the state that I could call and say, we have common cause. Cities had common cause with each other. Um, the way the state structures local government aid puts cities in common cause with one another, which is great. Um, and it was, it's also, uh, 
knowing when the face of Minneapolis is the best face to be at the legislature and knowing when it is not the best face to be at the legislature. That was even more relevant when I was mayor because there were things that it was not useful for me to go advocate for at the state capitol. It would have put a target on us as opposed to solving the problem. And I did know that as well. And I took some hits from people saying, why aren't you at the capitol more? It's like, because we actually want to win. <laughs> you know, like, have you heard some of the things some of these legislators say about Minneapolis and the people who live here? Um, you know, me putting a target on our back is not going to help us get this legislation passed. But, I, you know, the flip side was I would go meet one-on-one with legislators about key issues about Minneapolis or things where we might have common cause bipartisan meetings, etc. When I was intergovernmental relations chair, I also, and being on the league board helped because the meetings were across the state, I made a point of going to where people were and not expecting them to come to Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're the big city, there, you know, people don't always respect the value that the greater part of the state holds for your city, just as people in the greater part of the state don't always understand the value that your city holds for them. And if you can go where people are, reducing that resistance a little bit and build a relationship there that you can talk to somebody and know a little bit about them and they can know a little bit about you, it helps. It helps. And so I made a point of going to other places around the state and building relationships there with legislators as well as council members and other mayors. You mentioned kind of being involved in local government for most of your adult life, whether that's, you know, neighborhood councils, city councils. I know you were affiliated with nonprofits as well. Um, The mayor, obviously. Um, How has your conception of power changed through those experiences? I mean, I think of it in terms of leadership and who can, how many people follow you, how many people will follow your lead. And sometimes they follow your lead because they're compelled to. Sometimes they follow your lead because they don't have enough information to not follow you. But, but that's one dynamic I really think about in terms of power is... You know, on the city council, can you get seven people to vote with you? If not, then you don't have a ton of power. Uh, As mayor, can you get enough support for what you're trying to do that people will advocate so that you can get seven votes or nine votes on the city council? You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, for me, power, it comes down to that network of relationships that most people have far more power than they think they have. But... um, it's most obvious when aggregated, organizing works. Yeah. If it didn't, everyone would fund it. Because <laughs> I, th- I think you're also asking about the tools of oppression that people have at their disposal mm-hmm. and whether or not they can effectively wield them. And the I learned a lot about that too. I was shocked at the level and volume of sexism that came my way when I switched from being in a legislative role to being in an executive role. And that is in part because when you're in an executive role, you have more levers of power in your hand. And so, you know, the equal opposite weight of people trying to use their power to have you not use what's at your disposal comes at you. And they will use what they've got, right? And the tools of sexism are easily available to them and they use them. And it it took many forms. Um, You know, the the local newspaper here uh, refused to run 
good pictures of me and stories about the good work that I was doing. And there was a lot of stories about things they considered mishaps or negativity. There are a lot of negative editorials about my work. And what really brought that home for me was I had a working family's agenda that uh, included earned sick and safe time. Uh, I was widely excoriated uh, from more conservative folks for having the agenda at all. I was told it would never happen, um, that earn sick and safe time wouldn't happen. Um, I put it out there in my state of city address because there was a a bunch of organizing happening around it and I was working with that and I put it out there in my state of the city dress. Um, people were very upset about it and uh, many negative editorials and, and um, lots of articles about how uh, terribly I was handling the process. And then we enacted it somehow magically even though I, <laughs> I did such a terrible job or instant and safe time passed not just me right council members working community members working all of us working together it passed and it went really well and people were liking it so the same newspaper did an entire article you know the same newspaper that had spent all this time and energy talking about what a terrible job I was doing and how horrible it was that I had put this agenda out there and what a terrible thing it was they did an article about how successful the policy was and they didn't mentioned my name a single time a single time I appeared nowhere in that article and that was a big lesson to me I learned everything I needed to know about that newspaper in that moment I learned every and nothing that happened subsequent to that um, changed that view it only reinforced that view and so you know that would be one example another would be you know, I'd been on the council for eight years. I'd worked with the mayor. The mayor before me was a was a white guy and um, good mayor, really good mayor. And, you know, I was an ally of his on the council. And I was in a lot of meetings. I, I, I know how people treated him. And so when I became mayor, I very naively thought, well, yeah, you know, I mean, you're the mayor and you say, hey, let's do this. Hey, can you please do this? And then people will do that thing because I had seen that happen over and over. It turns out when you're a woman... Um, they don't just actually do what you say, even if you are the mayor. One of the things I realized is women were socialized to, many of us anyway, are socialized to make our first request at like 40% of intensity, right? A man, particularly white men, will make their first request at like 60% of intensity and then Everybody's like, oh, yes, that's leadership. I'm going to go get that done. And as a woman, it's like, hey, uh, you know, I, I think it'd be really great if you did X, Y, and Z. You know, it's just less intense. And then they don't do it because they don't want to. Um, and so you have to come in at like 50% of intensity. And maybe they'll do it and maybe they won't because they don't want to. They still don't do it. You're 50. So then you get to 60% intensity where a guy starts or... Actually, let's be real, you have to get to 70% of intensity to actually get somebody to hear you. I expect this to be done Monday by 5 o'clock on my desk, or these are going to be the consequences, because I've asked you twice already and it isn't done. And then maybe they'll do it. It's more likely, not a guarantee, that they'll do it, but then you are a bitch. Right? And that's how that dynamic works. Like, there's no just the right amount of leadership. There's no just the right amount of leadership. That dynamic... Uh, was brought home to me a number of times with consultants that we worked with, with certain city staff. It was just, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. But that was about people's willingness to use the tools that our systems and culture have given them. And they may not have even known that that's what they were doing.
Um, and I've had to come to that understanding as well, that they may not have even known. Uh, so I want to be respectful of your time. Um, <laughs> but there, I just want to give you, I guess, the opportunity to talk a little bit more about the future of this whiteness project, the reclamation yeah. project. Um, and also, since you mentioned President Obama, mm-hmm. you shared a funny, funny, yeah. I thought it was a funny it was story funny. of your interaction with him. I think you were in Oakland. Uh, about the oh, project, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. which was funny. Yeah. Uh, so I'll just give you the floor to talk about kind of the future. So the future of the Whiteness Project, uh, the the position I'm in now, what I've been doing for the last 18 months since I left office is having a series of structured conversations with people across the country about whiteness um, and about what framework can we create for white people to do this work with each other Um, based on a systems understanding with accountability and expectation, but also compassion. What framework can we create that doesn't condone or appear to condone the racism on which the identity is based? And is it possible to even do that? Right now, the only secular framework that is available culturally and, you know, the only mental infrastructure most people have for white people doing this work with each other Um, based on some sort of compassion is Nazism and white supremacy. And that serves, the only thing served by that are Nazis and white supremacists. So so I'm trying to figure out what framework we can create. I'm having that conversation with a lot of people just hearing their thoughts and people from all walks of life, all kinds of job categories, all ages, races, um, indigenous folk and non-indigenous folk. Um, and we'll see where that goes. There's some potential news that I won't tell you right now. <laughs> we'll have to have you back. Um, yes, yes. Hello, when you see it, um, that I, you know, there's some resources coming to help support that project. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and all of that has to be done in consultation with folks of color. Um, to your question earlier. I wrote a piece about the Rodney King verdict, or the verdict about the officers acquitted for beating Rodney King uh, last month for the anniversary. I wrote a piece about that and on CNN.com. I have some white friends and allies who um, I asked them for their feedback on it, but I made sure that um, trusted allies of color, indigenous allies, also took a look at it from the viewpoint of where what is my whiteness not seeing where have i said something stupid or unthinking and these are people i built up a relationship with that i could ask them this mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't you know random people and i got feedback and there were places where i you know the language i was using was off or it sounded apologetic or like i didn't understand x y and z and i was so grateful um i i won't you know i will never be outside my whiteness um, I just keep doing my best to walk away from it. That's one thing that I would say too is is you know build those trusted relationships um, as you're able. I was in Oakland for my brother's keeper rising MBK rising. Uh, my brother's keeper is a project that President Obama started when he was in the White House. When he left the White House, he moved it into the Obama Foundation. They're doing amazing work. Check them out. And I was able to be at this. Uh, I was able to be at the convening they had in Oakland in February or March, and um, had the good fortune of being in the photo line to say hello to and have a picture with President Obama. And 
he asked me what everybody asks me when they see me and they haven't seen me for a while, what are you up to? And um, without think, without a lot of thought, I was like, well, I'm enrolling, I'm working to enroll white people in this project. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm working to enroll white people, you know, in this project, meaning, you know, this work of MBK and other work and other work. And he looked a little startled. And he said, but he, you know, very gracious. He said, well, that's really important work. Thank you for doing it. We should have got one picture and I left. And I didn't realize till later that that was probably an unusual thing to say to him and I but to be fair my work is to create more of us who say that the final question we ask all our guests and that is about action steps so uh, for whoever listens people in Milwaukee people in Minneapolis whoever what what is either the most or some of the most effective action steps you've seen individuals take to make a positive difference in their community know your neighbors like actually know your neighbors, know the people in your neighborhood, embed yourself in your community, give service to your community, volunteer for a city council race or a school board race. I would say even if it's just go door knocking a few times or bring food to a fundraiser for a candidate you like, because you get a picture of local government and what it's like when you do that. But the most important thing is know your neighbors. And a tip I give people all the time is when you are talking with a candidate for office, whether they're running for school board or whether they're running for president. Ask them if they know the names of their next door neighbors and ask them if anybody on their block has a key to their house. Because you get a sense then of are they embedded in their community? How well they know their neighbors? Which to me is a litmus test for how real are they? Hmm. Betsy blew me away in so many instances. I've had the opportunity to hear her speak in several settings and this by far was the best. Something that stood out and that I love to share when talking to others about this conversation is her inner truth and mission that continues to guide her. She did not set out to be an elected official, which allows her to continue her work outside of office. Losing office must have been hard, but I'm so glad she discussed and continues to discuss her dedication to racial equity and unveiling whiteness in order to bring communities forward together. Because of this, I am confident it is not just the office that mattered to her, but her principles. Also, let's talk about her action steps. Personally, living in an apartment complex in a younger college area in Milwaukee, I don't know my neighbors that well. I know my upstairs neighbor, shout out to TJ, because we coordinate parking daily, but I don't know what makes him tick or thrive. And the times I've been most involved center around organizing and election time. So it really struck me as something that I've one, talked to people about as they're planning where to live and place roots, but two, been thinking about because I 100% need to take this action for myself. And I appreciate her stating clearly to know our neighbors. We are all people and we all have a story and I have been thinking about how I can be more actionable around this since our interview. Thank you, Betsy, for giving our listeners such a great conversation and a positive action step that pushes us out of our comfort zone. First, I just want to say uh, another thank you to Mayor Hodges. I left this interview so inspired and it was one of the best conversations we've had on the podcast. And one of the conversations that really pushed me to think differently. But what I really want to focus on is something that I found really fascinating. And that is the fact that so many of our guests on the podcast, their action step has been simply get to know your neighbors. 
that was one of the first action steps we actually got on the podcast when we interviewed Adam Carr for our first episode and probably, you know, six, eight or 10 other guests since then have said that action step, know your neighbors. I think oftentimes when we try to make change in our community, we think of some maybe more sexier or cool ways to do that. But I think there's something to be learned that this thread of simply knowing the people you live around and organizing your block and knowing your community is so prevalent in our discussions really underlies the importance of just that. And so I would say there's a simple challenge on this podcast today, and that is if you don't know your neighbors, go buy some cookie dough, okay? Put it in the oven, make some cookies, and go introduce yourself. Just that initial contact is gonna make when you need community support down the road so much easier since they've seen you before. But I also just wanna stress the importance of building these relationships because here on Bridger City, we're always talking about local elections and just voting in general. One of the most effective ways to get people to vote or to change their opinion about certain things is having that trust with that person before the conversation takes place. It's so much easier if you know your neighbors to go door knock and say, hey, you know me, I gave you cookies at one time. We say hi. I just wanna say that the school board election is really important to me and here's who I'm supporting and I would really like to see you vote you don't need to support who I'm supporting, but here's why I'm supporting them. If you have a relationship with that person, they're going to listen. If that's your first time ever talking to them, it can come off as very pretentious. Well, why are you just coming around just because you want votes, but you don't really care about me? And so communities that know each other, support each other, can organize so much easier. I just want to leave this monologue with the quote that is still sticking with me that I first heard Mayor Hodges say a few weeks ago, and that is organizing works. Because if it didn't, they'd fund it more. Thank you again to Mayor Hodges for sharing her insight on the podcast and giving some great action steps. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate the podcast five stars on iTunes and leave a comment as this helps others find the podcast and start taking action in our community. If you haven't enjoyed the podcast, please rate the podcast five stars anyway, because it look, it just makes us really happy. We also have some great news uh, that we are now on Spotify. So you can officially find our podcast on bridgethecitypodcast.com, iTunes, Stitcher, CastBox, and now Spotify. The Spotify interface is really nice. So if you haven't checked that out, search for Bridge the City on Spotify and give us a follow. Finally, we have some exciting interviews coming up, including Oluomo Worldwide, which is a Nigerian fashion line started here in Milwaukee. Angela Lang, who's the executive director of Block, which is Black Leaders Organizing for Communities, and CoLab, a creation of the commons in Milwaukee that seek solutions to community challenges. So thank you all for listening. Thanks to Mayor Betsy Hodges one more time. We will talk to you all in the next episode. And please let us know how you are helping bridge the city.